Welcome to the Solar Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Saar, and we've got Chris Herring of 538, a division of ESPN. I'm really excited to have him on to talk uh, basketball, as I've admired his insight and nuance as a writer and commentator of the last few years, back when he was at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so how's it going, Chris? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, just to let everybody know, that we were we recorded this uh, about uh, last earlier in the week as the Knicks were playing the Suns. But due to technical difficulties on my end, we have to record it now, and um, Chris has been gracious enough to do that. So we'll just uh, recap the game. Uh, it was an interesting Knicks-Suns uh, game. Chris Stapps had about 34 points, but uh, he uh, fouled out. And uh, it was an interesting, chippy game as there were many technicals given out and uh, a little bit of the Chris Stapps and uh, Marquise Chris uh, scuffle that occurred. So uh, what did you think of the game, really? but really more about that, uh, that uh, scuffle? Well, the game itself uh, was kind of that awkward dance that the Knicks do, and I, you know, I can obviously speak better from their perspective. Where uh, Porzingis has times that he's going to be dominant, and it, it ends up being a question of when he's dominating like that, um, is he on the right kind of roster where they're going to allow him to dominate throughout the fourth quarter as well? Kind of let the offense run through him in the fourth quarter as well. Um, since obviously Carmelo is there, and whether Jeff Hornacek kind of gives Chris Stapps the ability to continue to try to stay in a groove as opposed to the offense coming to a complete halt, um, you know, to allow the ball to go through Carmelo or to allow Derek Rose to try to isolate. Um, in this case, you know, I think part of the reason they lost is because Porzingis fouled out, and um, that's something that he'll get smarter with over time. He's a young player, but um, kind of having to be even more... Um, judicious over which sort of fouls you're going to commit and when you're going to commit them when you're kind of the team's entire offense for a night. Um, but, you know, like I said, I can speak better from their perspective. But the Suns, you know, obviously Eric Bledsoe has been playing really well lately. The Knicks are really, really dreadful on that end of the floor in terms of guarding opposing point guards, so that doesn't surprise me that he went off. But, but the Suns are a fun team to watch. They've got a couple of really good young players. Um, and it's just kind of a question of whether they can figure it all out, put it together as a team. But there's some things to like about what they're doing. You know, they've got a good mix of vets and young players. It's, I don't think it'll work out the way Watson said this year about making the playoffs. I think he was speaking more optimistically than anything else. But uh, but it, that's a fun team. And, you know, the Knicks have some elements of what they're doing that are a lot of fun as well. Exactly. I mean, uh, Bledsoe had a three straight, and ending with this New York game, the three straight 30-plus games. Hasn't been done by his son since Amari Stoudemire. And uh, they really had some, some good stuff there. Blitzo's shot really this year has kind of taken off. I have I was watching him, and uh, he really used to have to, a couple of years ago, walk into a three from the wing or from behind the arc there. I don't even recall him shooting many uh, corner jumpers. And he can now shoot them from all across there without having to do that. And I really have more confidence in his shot. Um, so what did you what do you think about Devin Booker? I like Booker. Um, he he's so young, and I mean, I think he kind of gets a little bit lost in the conversation with that 2015 draft class. I think part of the reason is you've just got so many good bigs in that class, and also so many guys that were taking taken ahead of him, like D'Angelo Russell and, um, and and stuff like that. So people tend to forget about him. Also, I think he plays. It's not a small market that he plays in, but I think the fact that the Suns have struggled more and they're not in necessarily like a, a New York or an L.A. type of market. Um, and so I think people have just tended to forget about him. Um, but he, you know, what, what's happening with him, he had a really good rookie season, I think better than a lot of people expected. He's probably the best shooter in that class by far. Um, and the, the question now is how do the Suns go about developing him? You know, when you and I talked earlier in the week, we were talking about the increase in his usage percentage and kind of how much more of the offense was not running through him, but how much more of the offense he was participating in, which is probably a necessary step from first year to second year, but also finding the balance between increasing his workload but not doing it too quickly. Um, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised to find out that he could do more than just catch and shoot. You know, he has other skills. Um, he's not a bad pick-and-roll player at all. But, you know, everything outside of that takes time to develop. And, you know, the guy I think was the youngest player drafted last season, at least of the lottery guys. And so it's going to take him a while. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like I like him as a player. I don't think there's much not to like. 
I think he's bigger than what people realize. Um, you know, he's very good size for a two guard, and um, I think he'll be a very, very good player. I just think they need to be careful about um, how much of the offense they kind of utilize him for at any given time. Exactly. I mean, for context, for those who are want listening to this who aren't in the Suns market, uh, last year when Watson took over, uh, there was uh, Bledsoe and Knight. Bledsoe was out for the season. Warren was out for the season. They just traded Marquise Morris. And Brandon Knight was out for many games during the second half of the year. So they were without their top four scorers. And at many several games, they were playing without any point guards whatsoever, having Archie Goodwin and other players play point guard and Booker do run all the offense. So it was kind of there was nothing there, really, for them to be able to, to, to do and really to develop him. Booker was such a focal point for defenses that it was kind of throwing him in the fire there. So now he has it's more balanced, but still the thing you don't want with his development is to throw him into ISO too much. Although I've seen the last several games when you need a point at the end of the shot clock, you can throw it to him and he can get a fadeaway over anybody because he is about six seven now, maybe grow a little bit, a couple more inches before he uh, really stops growing because he's just turned 20 at the beginning of the season. So wow. he'll... he'll uh, yeah, so he started six six when he was drafted. Now he's six seven, and he has a couple more inches to go, probably. So we'll see how he can get there. Once he gets stronger and is able to actually guard threes, he may. Uh, I mean, he's not guarding Paul George right now at six nine and much stronger. But if he can get there, maybe he can move to small forward and really stretch that floor for them. Um, so that's so that's what really interesting. You had mentioned on Twitter, Chris, uh, that you would like to. What Watson brings. I want to you know, kind of explain what you were saying, and uh, we can talk about that Zach Lowe interview that Watson did as well. Yeah, well, I, I like a lot of different elements of it, and part of that has to do with Zach and, and how good he is at asking questions. Mm-hmm. But um, with Watson specifically, um, he just kind of seems like a guy that has his worldview is a really nice perspective, um, and, and maybe one that's not often seen, you know, that obviously can relate with a lot of these guys and a lot of these players that come from inner cities in a way that, that not every coach can. You know, you've got a lot of uh, coaches in the NBA that, you know, did not necessarily grow up in the most urban settings and, um, you know, and a lot of them that didn't play in the NBA. And so it's a little bit tougher to relate with some of the guys. But um, Watson can do that and also can draw back from, you know, a really historic figure um, at, at UCLA. And so that, that's pretty cool, you know, the fact that he had the – the talk with John Wooden, and I thought that was an interesting highlight in Zach's mm-hmm. article to say that, you know, that John Wooden told him to his face that he couldn't have really played for him. And then when he asked why, um, John Wooden referenced, you know, kind of how fancy, uh, the, the sort of fancy elements of his game that John Wooden really didn't like. And Zach asked, well, did you cut those things out after he told you that? And he said, no, I, you know, the next game I threw it off the backboard pass to Baron Davis. And so I thought that was funny. And then, you know, for as funny as that was, I also thought it was really interesting that right after that, um, that they got into a really serious subject about Earl Watson losing a member of his family, essentially just a murder, and um, Earl Watson saying that he forgave the guy that did it, and you know, and, and actually told the judge, um, I think during the sentencing process, that it didn't really do any good to, you know, to put the guy behind bars forever, and that that was a decision that the judge would have to make, but that Watson wouldn't necessarily advocate for that, yeah, because he, then it, it creates kind of a, a snowball effect, and then it takes two people away from society as opposed to just one, and that just takes a, I mean, I, I don't think I'm the kind of person that could do that, you know, fortunately I haven't had anyone in my family taken from me like that, but if I did, I you know, I don't know that I would be nearly as forgiving, or if I'd be forgiving at all, I'm a... You know, I'm a spiritual person, a religious person, but I don't think that I would have it in my heart to be able to forgive, or if I did, to be able to forgive it that quickly and in that way, um, to where I would be arguing for anything other than, um, you know, putting the person away for as long as we could. So, um, for that reason, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I don't necessarily know that I could be that way myself, but I, I have great admiration for people that that essentially can view things way differently than I can in a way that might be more productive. But, you know, even if something is more productive for society, it doesn't necessarily make it better for you. Exactly. Um, so I respect people that can go against what's best for themselves or what, in their heart, especially in kind of the heat of the moment, what they feel in their heart. Yeah, it was amazing kind of what Earl, how Earl 
uh, did that. So I definitely encourage everybody to take a look at Zach Lowe's article, ESPN there for the, on with his Q and A with Earl Watson. And really, Earl, um, it's hard. We, it's hard for everybody's talking about Earl Watson. It's hard to to see what his scheme is. I see some things that are different from the Hornacek years that are good and interesting, but I haven't. We don't really know enough yet, especially since from because last year was so tumultuous, and this year they're so young. I mean, there's four people under the age of 20 getting decent minutes, um, and some of them get not as many. But Booker's 20, and Chris is 20, both starting. And they're barely, and they're not even old enough to drink. So it's kind of ridiculous. Um, so Watson can really make he can, he's really good at motivating and culture. Uh, I was listening to a different podcast with Zach Lowe and uh, Coach David Thorpe, and he had mentioned a different quote saying, "Culture beats strategy every time." And I thought that was interesting because you don't know what Watson brings to the table in terms of that, which is why he has Jay Triano and other coaches on his staff to help him with the. X to the nose part, even though he's a great point guard during the in the during in the league, but uh, we so there's a culture beats that everybody's gonna give more effort. They're gonna be more of a family, and that's really uh, what the Suns needed back from the Marquise Morris and Dragic and Isaiah Thomas issues. So it's good that they have it all together now, and something that a lot of teams do not have. Yeah, I mean that part is always kind of interesting, um, and. Sometimes, you know, you get guys, I think Watson is kind of right in that sweet spot, but a lot of the guys that you had that came into the league in, like, the mid-'90s, um, you you see some of them that really don't, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be that far off in terms of the timing of it, uh, of, of when they came into the league as coaches um, and kind of, like, the generational difference. But the truth is, it, it actually, you, you look at guys, I guess, like uh, a Brian Shaw, or even Derek Fisher, for that matter, that came in like around the time that Kobe did. And then even if you look at the way that Kobe kind of carried himself and the way that he pushed certain guys, that it just, it, you know, and his teammates, it just doesn't seem like the league is exactly the same anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that guys, you have to kind of push different buttons and you have to be able to relate with them differently. You know, I found it really interesting, kind of that divide. Brian Shaw, when he basically said that, you know, that he was telling guys to put their cell phones away during film sessions and then that Derek Fisher... Um, you know, bless his heart, and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with it or that it's necessarily a generational thing, but the idea that he tried to follow in Phil Jackson's footsteps to try to give these guys books to read. And that's yeah. fine. You know, it's an admirable sort of quality to have and wanting guys to be engaged. But I, I just think um, for young coaches now, it really helps if you kind of can relate with these guys. And I think Ty Lue is a good example of that, um, you know, and, and kind of a switch from David Blatt to him how important it is that these guys can relate with their coaches and if they can't um, then it can get really ugly really fast especially if you've got kind of guys that are really moody in the locker room which is why I I was so surprised like a team like Sacramento uh, let go of Mike Malone Mm -hmm. because he seemed to connect with DeMarcus Cousins at least early on Mm -hmm. in a way that other people really haven't been able to do and I mean the truth is you can bring in a polished Hall of Fame coach like George Carl. And granted, George Carl has had issues with other players in the past, so it's not to say that he's been perfect in that regard. But it tells you that guys, if they can relate with you, um, that the respect might actually carry over further in that regard when they can relate with you than if you've just proven winner. That, you know, being a proven winner does not necessarily equate to respect. Um, David Blatt, that was true of him too, although he didn't uh, coach him in the NBA before. But, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting dynamic, and I think the, you know, the changeover to Watson, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that, too, when they made the move from Hornacek. Yeah, it's because, I mean, the coach is on, on the court making the plays. Is you, if you have the culture, like, it's, it can make them play better, it can make them effort and really embrace your, your strategy, however good it may be. But if you don't have the trust, it's really hard for them to implement the strategy correctly. Uh, but it's interesting because Hornacek was at the Suns, now he's in New York. What do you think of the job he's done there? Well, I think he's done a good job for the most part. I mean, what's interesting, and I immediately kind of seized on this when I was still covering the team um, at the Journal, that, you know, to me what was interesting is that Phil Jackson seemed to kind of uh, punch his teeth, grit his teeth when um, the Knicks would run anything other than the triangle um, when Fisher was the coach, even when they were winning. You know, Fisher 
got fired in uh, what month was that? I guess it was late January. Yeah, I think. something like that. Yeah. Um, last season, and they had just gone on a really nice win streak, or at least a nice stretch where they won six or six out of ten or seven out of ten. They were at five hundred, and you know, in early January, and people kind of had to take notice and say, "This is impressive." You know, people didn't necessarily think they'd compete that quickly coming off a of seventeen and sixty-five season. They made some real improvements to the team, but there were still obvious roster holes and and depth problems. And, you know, so they won at a higher clip than what people expected. Then the minute they started losing, I think they lost eight out of nine in late January. And then Bill axed Fisher, which was probably more surprising because of how close those guys Mm -hmm. were, you know, over over the course of Bill's coaching career. And also Derek Fisher playing under him and kind of being the floor general in those situations. And then Bill making him his first hire as a GM or an executive. And so that was surprising. But then, you know, Bill did kind of acknowledge the fact that he wanted to see the triangle run better and more effectively, and that that was part of the reason he was bringing in Kurt Rambis. Um, but what I found really interesting is that um, when Phil hired Hornacek and there had been all these rumors, you know, that I'd gotten sources, that several people had gotten sources to tell them that Hornacek would not be bound by the triangle system and have to absolutely run that system, I thought it was really interesting that Phil said, well, Jeff can kind of do what he wants. I'm going to give him a longer leash because he's done this job before, whereas Derek Fisher had not. And he said it as if Hornacek had coached five different teams before, (laughs) whereas he'd coached once, and it was, you know, a somewhat rocky ending. I think he did have a good first year or two there in Phoenix, but obviously the third year was kind of disastrous. I don't know if it was all his fault. Uh, Probably not, but... I did find it really interesting that Phil was willing to give him that leeway, and Jeff Hornacek has kind of taken, um, you know, he's taken a pretty good degree of independence with that. I think partly because Derek Rose was uh, out during most of the preseason with his court case, and Joachim Noah missed a lot of time during the preseason, but for all sorts of reasons, they, they never really had time to practice in the preseason as a, as a starting five and as a unit, and so kind of by definition, they had to run a lot of pick and roll at the beginning of the season, and I think um, it kind of became a convenient excuse to not really run much of it at all, because Derrick Rose is a very just instinctive player. Um, He can run a set offense, but by making him do that, you're kind of limiting what all he can do with his athleticism. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of a couple guys on that roster. Porzingis can play within a system as well, but he's probably best as a pick-and-pop threat with, with someone like Derrick Rose, Carmelo was one of the most efficient pick-and-roll players a couple of years ago in the league. And, you know, so it's, it's a way to induce movement in the offense, but it's also kind of the best sort of basketball that those guys can play, especially those three. And so um, that's probably been the biggest difference. And Horacek has come out and said a couple times, you know, I, we're not running much triangle at all. And you already know, based on Phil Jackson's beliefs and kind of his history as a coach and, and then even the first couple of years as a president with the Knicks, that he – places a higher priority on the triangle than most people place on anything in life. And so, um, <laughs> so you have to imagine that it, it, it probably doesn't sit incredibly well with him, but that it's hard to say much when the team is in playoff contention, at least at the moment. And as long as, you know, the players, he's getting the best out of the players. Now that said, um, there is a little bit of egg on the face for Phil so far in the sense that he made his big offseason acquisition, the joke of Noah move. And Noah, as a lot of us, I think, predicted or could have predicted has not played that well and definitely has not been an $18 million a year type of player so far. And Jeff Hornacek now has kind of openly said we're going to monitor how Noah does, basically that he won't make any changes just yet in terms of the lineup, but that they might have to do that at some point. And you have to imagine that that's probably not making Phil incredibly happy to hear that or to see that that's happening. Um, I don't necessarily know that it means that Hornacek would be doing anything wrong from my vantage point, but I'm sure Phil would like for Hornacek to find a way to make that work given the investment that he just put into that position. Yep. Joe by the way, Joe Noah's uh, free throw free throw attempts and this release makes me really sad. It's so bad. He's thirty percent from the line and, and it, it's hard to really think at this point that a lot of what he's dealing with is not mental. You know, I, I mm-hmm. will say that and I have pointed out before that I think last year, maybe even the two years the last two years combined, that Noah shot something like forty percent um, at the rim when he was on no days of rest, but then he shot 60% at the rim when he was on two days of rest or more. And so, you know, he's been so injured the last couple of years that I think you can make an argument that 
some of that is him maybe not getting the lift he needs and, you know, um, diminishing athleticism after, you know, being one of the more mobile players at that position. They just have so many problems with his feet and his knees. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you start looking at the way that his free throw percentage has fallen off over the course of his career, Noah is a 70% shooter for his career at the line. He got up to as high as, as basically 75%, um, I think, the year that he finished fourth in the MVP voting. So he's not a, he, he wasn't a bad free throw shooter, at least. But it, ever since then, he's gone from 750 to 737 to 60% to 489 and now 30%. And, and so, I mean, it's hard for me to, to think that a lot of that isn't mental. I, I would venture to guess that a lot of it is. He's the kind of person that seems like he doesn't want to get fouled at this point and doesn't really want to shoot. And that makes stuff even worse because teams are already kind of compelled or not compelled to guard him in the first place. And now it's kind of like he's given them even fewer reasons to do it. Um, and, and so that's that's a big challenge um, so far. I mean, his minutes are down almost 20 minutes a game at this point. And that's just, again, you cannot overstate how big of a stake that is for, from a contract standpoint. Mm-hmm. And this has been the next problem in the past is that they've over – They've, they've spent too much on guys that were in the back end of their career where they played their best season somewhere else. Obviously, the Amari situation, and you look at Anthony Hardaway, and Stephon Marbury, and mm-hmm. Stephen Francis, and you could go on and on and on. Um, and, and you wonder if that very early on, that's kind of what it looks like here as well. And it might be an even more unforgivable sort of thing when you consider the fact that arguably the best player on their roster plays the position that Noah plays and then you've got him locked up for the next three and a half seasons. It just seems like a really ill-advised decision. Definitely. For those who don't know what his his free throw looks like, he looks like he's shooting it with both his hands, kind of using the thumb for some reason, and it has side spin, and it just looks ridiculous. Like, I can almost make that, I mean, that percentage shooting with one hand because, like, chucking it, because it just has a better chance of going in than, than spinning the sideways and not even straight. But, um... So I wanted to get into uh, Tyson Chandler because you, how long, how much of Tyson's uh, New York career were you uh, covering the team for? Um, I, I covered Tyson for I think two full years, um, maybe part of a third. Um, so yeah, he he was easily one of the most fun players I covered. Maybe not fun isn't the word. I, I mean, I did think it was fun. Um, he obviously was had a level of seriousness to him that um, I guess there were some guys on the twelve thirteen team. They won 54 games. You know, there's a level of seriousness to him that uh, a few guys on that roster had because they had Jason Kidd and um, Kurt Thomas and, you know, and Camby and some of these guys that have, have won before um, and won in other places. But um, Tyson also was just, a, you know, in my mind, at least from what I was able to see, just a class act in terms of the way that he treated me and um, the way that he dealt with his teammates, the kind of things that his teammates said about him. Um, away from the court and away from the game. Um, so I really enjoyed covering him. Yeah, he, uh, in that game against the Knicks, he had about, I think it was 23 rebounds. He is, I mean, he's doing very well in terms of rebounding. I believe, I believe he's like 8th or 6th or something like that in the league, which is impressive for someone who's about 34 years old. Um, but he, so it's, I want to know more about him as a person and everything, kind of what he was like off of the court, on the court. He's such a good leader, and he's, I mean, Marquis Chris is learning from him, Alex Lund's learning from him, Bender's learning from him in Phoenix. Uh, but tell me more about what he's like as a person. Well, I will start by bringing up one thing you, you, you mentioned. Um, his his play seems like it always kind of goes up a notch when he's playing against the Knicks. I kind of feel like he took offense to the idea that, um, that the Knicks basically kind of bad-mouthed him on the way out. Um, mm-hmm. Phil basically said, I can't remember exactly what Phil said, but Phil said something to the effect that, you know, that he had to let certain guys go because of an attitude adjustment or certain guys that just really didn't have good attitudes. Um, and and that I thought that was interesting because Tyson, for the most part, was, again, a class act. Um, you know, he did have two issues that I remember that kind of stood out. There was one where... I think in the playoffs one year, he kind of made a point of saying that the ball didn't move enough for the team to have the success they wanted to have in the postseason. And I think when he said that, everyone assumed he was talking about Carmelo, and it was in the middle of a playoff series that he said it. And so it kind of had that, that element to it where people thought maybe he was sniping at Carmelo. And I think, I mean, that happened several times with Amari as well, where Amari said stuff like that, and it was very clear that he was talking about Carmelo. 
Um, so that was one thing that people pointed to, and some fans didn't like. And Carmelo, I don't think, loved that he said that. And I think there, you know, there were reports that those two grew apart during Tyson's time in New York. But there was that, and then there was also a time where I asked a question about their defense, which was god awful after you know the year after uh, Tyson won Defensive Player of the Year. And I asked, you know, you guys switch probably more than anybody in the NBA. You switch your assignments on defense and on screens. And, you know, just from my vantage point, it doesn't look like you guys have great personnel to run that because at the time they had a guy like Raymond Felton. And, um, you know, you guys, you just had guys that were such different heights. You had Andrea Bargnani on that team. So you had several different guys that weren't at all the same height. And whereas the 12-13 team, you had – a starting five where I think three or four of those guys were all about the same size, and it was much more feasible to switch. And I asked Tyson, you know, do, do you guys really have the ideal personnel to make the switching work that often? And he said no. He was very blunt in answering it. I mean, it was just giving an honest answer to the question. And that, you know, that divides people, too. It's polarizing, you know, do you answer questions honestly, or do you, you know, do you kind of try to redirect the question a different way? Do you ignore it? Do you lie? And he told the truth, and it got blown up in the tabloids. You know, it was the, the back page headline that Tyson Chandler sounded off about the defense and feeling like it didn't really work or fit the personnel. And so people took it as an affront to Mike Woodson. Mike Woodson took it as an affront to Mike Woodson. And so those sorts of things kind of um, – some people spun that as kind of like Tyson being a malcontent when I think he was just being honest. And, you know, as a person – um, I had no issues with him at all, and I kind of felt bad that he was uh, spun as this awful guy or this, you know, this any someone that was somehow like less than a team player because he just spoke the truth about a lot of these issues. Um, but in my dealings with him, he was always great. You know, would go out of his way to ask me how I was and how my family was. I did the same with him, and and honestly, you know, I think the other thing he took a lot of heat for in New York was um, how often he got sick. Um, and specifically when he would get sick, it was, it was generally toward, um, you know, the spring. And so the playoffs would always be right around the corner. And so he got sick one year and had like a really, really high fever or flu where it was like up above a hundred. And I think sat out a uh, game against Miami in the playoffs then came back for the next one. and was still clearly not himself. Um, and then the next year came back and then they played the Pacers and, uh, he just wasn't himself. He had lost so much weight over the course of that series and also had been playing through, like, a bulging disc in his neck. Um, and so Roy Hibbert probably looked as dominant as I've ever seen Roy Hibbert look offensively, where he just really outplayed Tyson Chandler. Tyson was trying to be the good soldier and just play through it. Um, but, you know, he took a lot of heat for those things, too. And then there was another time where he was hospitalized during the regular season, and people said, you know, oh, my God, why does this guy keep getting sick? Um, and then right after he got back from that, the fact that um, Tyson took personal time off while the Knicks were um, fighting to try to get into the playoffs that season, and people were frustrated. I think they missed the playoffs by a year, a game that, se- that year, and people were frustrated with Tyson for missing games when I think his mother was in the hospital because she'd suffered a heart attack, I believe. And so, you know, people didn't know why he was missing games, but it was one of those things where it's like, you know, I, I don't... I don't judge people missing games for personal reasons when I don't know what the personal reasons are. And even if I do, that's someone else's life. You know, mm-hmm. if it's good enough for the team that he can skip the game, especially when they're in the midst of a playoff race, I'm not going to sit and judge the when and the why and the how of, of why someone's missing a game. And then even once I did know why he missed those games, Tyson asked the media not to report it, you know, for the time being. And so... Um, you know, I, I can respect someone like that that just goes about his business and wants his life to be somewhat private. Um, but he's, you know, he's a, a very family-oriented person. I um, wrote a story about why he got sick so often, and I, I kind of had some fun with it. Um, you know, basically did the research to look at when he got sick and for how long, and he basically never got sick at all in those years with the Bulls and then those first few years with Dallas. Um, and then once he did start getting sick pretty much on an annual basis. I, I looked it up, and he was the player that had missed the most games due to illness in the league over, like, the last seven or eight years. And that stri- that stretch all started when he heard, had his first child. And so my, my not hypothesis, but my kind of idea in the story or the, the thread in the story is basically, like, him having children, you know, he started getting sick, and his immune system kind of got weaker once he started having children. And that um, 
part of it was because of how devoted a father he was. And I talked mm-hmm. to Steve Novak, who played for the Knicks for a couple of years and was a teammate of Tyson's. And, and Steve told me that Tyson had his kids at practice more than any teammate he's ever had in his life. And so I think that, and, and I think the New York Times profiled Tyson um, one season and basically said that Tyson made a point if he wasn't playing on Sunday out of town, no matter what, even if he was playing at home, I think that the, the family would just kind of sit and either watch TV or find like an outdoor activity to do the whole day. Um, and that, that no matter what, that was always like, you know, what they did as a family. And so, you know, does that make him different than a lot of fathers in this country? Not necessarily, but he has a much different schedule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it, it's kind of nice to hear that someone can be that committed with the sort of schedule that they have. Um, so, I, I, you know, I admire Tyson in that one. Yeah, he's he's pretty awesome so far. I feel I think we were, we were talking about uh, the uh, his mom because I, think, I believe it was his mom that passed away recently, and he missed some Suns games the season for it. Um, so let's uh, so really quickly, I want to wonder what's your thought about his legacy in the league when he's in twenty years. What's he going to be thought of as? Is just the defensive player stopper? Does he have a shot at the Hall of Fame? I don't remember if we talked about this before. What do you think? Uh, no, I don't, I, I don't see him being in the Hall of Fame. I, uh, you know, I, honestly, I think that some players have a, a better chance of doing stuff like that because um, they have more than just their pro career to draw from. Mm-hmm. And so um, you look at someone like Carmelo. First of all, I don't think Carmelo is even a, a borderline case. I think he's very, very clearly going to be in the Hall of Fame. But um, even if he was a borderline case, I think the fact that he won a national title and was the best player on a college team that won the national title, that would obviously bolster his odds of getting in because it's the basketball Hall of Fame, not just the pro basketball Hall of Fame. But when you look at someone like Tyson, um, you know, someone that came straight out of high school that, you know, had the misfortune of playing for some pretty bad teams as well. You know, unfortunately, Phoenix will kind of fall in that same realm. Um, You know, Tyson had the time in New Orleans where they weren't necessarily the greatest for some of that time. And, um, you know, and, and... so between Phoenix, Chicago, when Chicago still wasn't very good, and, and New Orleans, um, Tyson had some some rough years in there just from a win-loss standpoint. So I don't think that um, the Hall of Fame is going to be in his, you know, in, in his portfolio or his resume when it's all said and done. Um, you know, I think other guys that have been perennial and, you know, uh, multi-year winners of Defensive Player of the Year, you know, have a shot at that. Maybe think about a guy like Ben Wallace or, mm-hmm. you know, someone like a Dikembe Mutombo or, you know, I think more likely because um, of the kind of career he had and the fact that he's the best player on his team several times, Dwight Howard. You know, I think those guys are more likely to be Hall of Fame players. But, I mean, Tyson does have some numbers that really stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, he is someone who, like you said, has been a great rebounder for a long time now. Um, you know, the thing that Nick fans really adored about the guy was that he was great at, even if he wasn't going to get a rebound for it necessarily, he was great at tapping the ball out to teammates. Love that. Um, hard to particularly, you. It, yeah, it's really hard to kind of measure those sorts of things, but it's a, a big hustle play um, that gets you extra possessions, especially on a team like the, the 12-13 Knicks were, um, at the time, they actually broke the record for most threes attempted and made in the season, and so several threes off of plays like that, either where he tipped the ball to someone and then they would find a pass, but you catch the defense off guard because the defense is expecting to get a rebound and run, and then they're out of position when he makes a play like that, and the guy's wide open for three. So he's a great offensive rebounder. He's also a very, very good defensive rebounder, despite how kind of slender he is compared to the rest of the league. So he, I mean, Tyson is a guy that just developed a lot of skills over his course, course of uh, his career. You look at Rob Mahoney wrote a really great piece kind of around Tyson and how he developed as a player after coming in at such a young age. Um, so I think that stands out about him. I think he's actually a pretty prototypical fit in one way or another, depending on how you view the league and the direction it's headed in. Uh, Porzingis, I think a lot of people would tell you him and Carl Anthony Towns are ideal um, fives in today's NBA. But Tyson, in a lot of ways, is too, when you consider the fact that so many teams run pick and rolls and they, they try to space the floor. And Tyson isn't a traditional floor spacer, but he – he does get the job done. You, you really can't leave him alone anywhere near the paint because if you do, he gets an easy lob or a dunk um, off of a rebound. And so, kind of like he's, he's kind of like a, a older version of DeAndre Jordan, slightly less athletic, but um, but you know, more seasoned version of DeAndre Jordan, um, where you know you, you really do have to account for him. And because of that, 
it, it limits how much you can kind of cheat toward the perimeter to guard floor spacers in, in a four-out or a five-out offense. And so, that again, why Tyson was so great in that Knicks offense was for that reason. So, um, and, and as a result of it, you look at his time with the Knicks, you look at now, you look at the time uh, that he spent in other stops. He's long been one of the most efficient players in the league. He's, I think he's got the highest offensive rating, individual offensive rating, in a, in a single season in league history. And I think when you look just in, in general, uh, over the course of his career, probably has one of the highest career offensive ratings as well, just because his shots are generally such um, easy shots because he, you know, teams don't know how to defend him along with the other responsibilities that they've got defensively. And so mm-hmm. um, he's a smart player. You know, I think a lot of people just give him credit and people would complain that he wasn't the kind of player that could back someone down or hit a fadeaway on someone or knock down an open jump shot regularly. But um, it, is, it is absolutely a skill to be able to stand there and to, you know, to set good screens, which I think is another thing he does that um, that doesn't really get kept as a stat or only recently been kept as an advanced stat. But, uh, I mean, he's a very, very valuable player. It's an interesting fit with Phoenix because uh, he obviously could teach some of the guys that they have there with uh, Chris and Alex Lynn. But, um, you know, I, I know deep down in his heart he'd probably prefer to be playing for a contender, and I think he even alluded to that last year that he'd have to wait and see as to whether or not he wanted to stay put, depending on what direction the team was headed in. Um, but, I mean, he's a very, very good player. Even still, I think he has a lot of value Um in this league and on on the Suns, for sure. And well, uh, you were you mentioned Carmelo, and I definitely think that Melo's totally a Hall of Famer. He has, I mean, he has nine All Stars, three gold medals at the Olympics, four four that bronze one, the Olympic scoring champ, I believe, and the he was the 2012-13 NBA scoring champ. The question for me was always, he has no title and no MVP, um, and I guess that doesn't. I mean, there's people in the Hall of Fame that don't have that. It just was an interesting question to me. Um, so I want to know more about Anthony. I mean, he's for me. He's one of the he's effortless scorer. He's one of the best scorers of this era. Um, unfortunately, he overlapped with both Kobe, LeBron, and Durant, and so he's kind of not been the best player in the league ever, ever really, unless maybe one year. Um, so I wanted to kind of what's he as a person? How has he matured? And because he's he's been a good rebounder, but he, with this high usage rate. The scoring makes sense, but he's so big and strong that he should have more. What do you think about him, his legacy, and uh, him as a person? Well, I think Carmelo, like you said, is absolutely a Hall of Famer. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, the people that will make the arguments that he shouldn't be or that it's going to be a really um, difficult choice, I think we'll have to take a, a really long, hard look at what his numbers are and the fact that um, – you know, no, he's probably not going to win a title, or if he does, it's going to be in a situation where he's teaming up with several guys to do it, um, and probably teaming up with players that are better than he is to do it. Um, but, I mean, just look at his body of work. I mean, Denver was easily one of the worst franchises in the NBA, and you could argue, you know, one of the worst ones in sports. They'd gone, I think, nine years without making the playoffs in a row before drafting Carmelo, and then you know, obviously spent a lottery pick on Carmelo, and then I think they made the playoffs for 11 or 12 years in a row after that, um, straight on from his rookie season. And a lot of people, if you talk to them now, they'll still say that they think Carmelo might have deserved the Rookie of the Year award over LeBron. Mm. Um, and, you know, statistically, I think there, there are some arguments to be made there that he might have, and especially when you consider the fact that Carmelo got his team into the playoffs that first year, whereas Cleveland was nowhere close. Um, so, you know, he... he turned around a franchise that was kind of in the in the dirt at the time and um, you know I, I think the New York stint has not been what he wanted it to be uh, he they made the playoffs the first couple of years he was there I think the first three years he was there and so easily the best recent period of Knicks basketball you have to go all the way back to the Van Gundy era to really find a time where they were good before that but um, you know the fact that they haven't even really come close to competing for a title um, that 12-13 team was as close as they got um, since Carmelo's been there. It's the only time Carmelo's been out of the first – that the Knicks have even been out of the first round since the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And and so I think that's been disappointing for them. I think a lot of them are going to look back and see that as a missed opportunity um, between Mike Woodson kind of wanting to play big and trying to match Indiana style instead of you know trying to play to the Knicks' strengths that season 
and the fact that again they, they went away from a style that especially now it, it just looks totally horrible that they went away from this floor spacing you know four out five out style with Tyson and with Carmelo and with a guy like Steve Novak that could shoot the three and that they for some reason decided to go away from that um, you know they lost some guys due to retirement because they had such an old team that year but um, you know by kind of gutting that team and gutting elements of that team and changing lineups with that next year that team next year um, I think they kind of really scrapped a lot of what made Carmelo so successful he still had a great season the next year but at, you know by playing Carmelo at the three a lot instead of playing him at the four with Tyson that was generally their best lineup to play those two at the four and five and play two point guards in that lineup and to play a guy like Iman Shumpert at small forward and basically to you know to have Amari come off the bench that those were the best lineups they had mm-hmm. for those couple of years and they were consistently good between Carmelo and Tyson being at the four and the five and so I think Carmelo missed an opportunity. Maybe he didn't miss the opportunity, but the Knicks missed a real opportunity to capitalize on the league going small and to capitalize on all the three-point shooting that they actually had and then got rid of to some extent with some ill-advised trades and signings and stuff like that. So, I, you know, I think Carmelo's legacy, though, is going to be exactly what you said. I think you have a player or two, maybe even three, every generation where you've got guys that just are not quite as good as a couple of all-time greats. I mean, Carmelo... I don't think the gap is particularly close with LeBron, but I, I don't think that takes away from the fact that Carmelo was definitely the second or third best small forward during his time. Um, definitely while um, while LeBron was there, you could make that argument. But then uh, even once Durant got into the league, I think it, you know, it took him a couple of years to really get to a point where he's consistently better than mm-hmm. Carmelo. Mm-hmm. Um, Durant was not a great defender when he first came in. I think he's grown into a much better one oh, wow. um, and a better one than Carmelo. And now I think even have guys like Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George, I think he could make a pretty clear argument, Draymond Green, that are at least natural small forwards and, and are better than he is from a two-way standpoint. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's not there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. You know, first of all, I think Carmelo thinks of himself as still being a top 10, 15 player in this league. I don't necessarily know if that's true, but I, you know, there's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. He's, he's won a scoring title, although you know the way he did it was a little strange that year. Um, you know, playing less games than Kevin Durant did. But winning a scoring title in an era where you're playing with Kevin Durant and other guys like that, um, to finish in the top three of an MVP vote when you're playing in a league with guys like Steph Curry and LeBron, there's nothing to be ashamed of. To be an all-star nine times, um, you know, many of those years where you weren't playing for the biggest market. Um, I mean, he has a lot to be proud of. The Olympics, I, I actually think, to some extent, he's done the Olympics so many times because he's realized that that was a piece of his legacy that he could kind of build that other people either don't emphasize or don't get the opportunity to do. And and you, you look back at the national championship, which will always be special for him. So he's he's done so well for himself. Um, and then aside from the basketball stuff, I think he's building arguably an even better legacy because of the stuff that he's standing for off the court. Um, you know marching with people in Baltimore, his hometown, mm-hmm. to protest the, the Freddie Gray homicide, which I, I thought was admirable that he did that, um, taking a stand against guns and, and all sorts of advertisements about that, um, and just kind of coming out and saying that we're in a bad place as a society and that we have a lot of room to improve and trying to um, further those conversations between communities and law enforcement and state government. And, you know, I don't know what that will lead to. I don't think he knows exactly what it will lead to. It might not lead to anything. Um, but, you know, I think the fact that he's at least thinking about it and saying this really bothers me and I, I do wish we could do something and I'd like to try something, uh, that and, and, and even the annual stuff that he does, it kind of goes under the radar. Where he's built several playing fields and playing courts uh, in different countries in Puerto Rico. Um, he, he, you know, if you look up his uh, charitable foundation, his – his is one of the ones that is viewed as the most reputable, one of the most reputable among athletes and mm. kind of famous figures where they don't, unlike certain ones, if you remember, uh, who was it, uh, Wyclef had the thing for Haiti a couple years ago where he was kind of starting the, the charity and the fund to go toward the earthquake victims, and then they looked up like a year later and they couldn't really account for any of the money or where it had gone. Oh my God. Carmelo's was like the polar opposite of that, where like every single dollar is accounted for, there's very low overhead hardly anybody gets paid in that organization. You know, it's just pretty much just going to charities. 
And so he, he deserves a lot of credit. I think a lot of stuff that people don't know that he does behind the scenes that is very admirable and, and that, you know, I think that people appreciate all over the country and all over the world. Definitely. And he's matured as a person over the years from when he was young in Denver to now. That was really interesting what you were mentioning uh, last earlier this week about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it was a pretty isolated thing. I mean, he, he did have a, a DUI, I think, earlier in his career, which a lot of people have that happen. doesn't excuse it, um, but, you know, he, he kind of vowed to be more on the straight and narrow after that, and he said it was embarrassing for him. Um, but I, I think the bigger thing, obviously, was uh, that a lot of people took issue with, and I think even made uh, 60 Minutes, was the, the Stop Stitching campaign that was happening, you know, basically encouraging people not to serve as witnesses for the police after killings or, or assaults and stuff like that. And Carmelo appeared in a video there when he was in Baltimore. I think the video was filmed before he was drafted, um, but didn't surface until after he was drafted and after he was in the NBA. And people kind of questioned, like, what sort of crew does this guy run with if he is um, kind of being this... Uh, I guess if he if he was lacking those sorts of smarts to know not to associate himself with those sorts of videos and those sorts of people, kind of what else is there that he's up to that people don't know about that they should in order to kind of form their opinion on whether or not to root for this guy, regardless of how talented he is or he was. And so that was something that he had to distance himself from several times at the beginning of his career. I think he was one of the main targets when the league was trying to crack down on the dress code, when they instituted a dress code where Carmelo wore really baggy clothes and um, played with Iverson at the time and, you know, kind of embraced that style and felt as if he was targeted and didn't like it. And now actually says that, looking back on it, he didn't like it at the time, but now feels like it was a good step for the league to do that and uh, enforce that because now it's kind of forced him and everyone else to step it up from a clothing standpoint. Now they all view themselves as, like, fashionistas. And so Carmelo... Um, Carmelo's done a, a huge 180. I don't think he needed to necessarily change the way he dressed to impact society differently. But the other stuff I do think is important. And I think, you know, like I said, I think that sort of stuff is when you think about a legacy, people are going to remember the basketball stuff. But you can't tell me that the people of Baltimore won't remember him more for the Freddie Gray stuff. It's just really, really great that he's taken a stand on certain issues and he's made it known what he thinks. Exactly. Good, good points there. Although it's interesting, uh, in the game uh, this week, uh, he was held to about to 13 points, which uh, I want to talk about because Tucker, Peter Tucker, was doing that, and uh, Tucker now in three straight games there he kept Anthony Davis to about 14, Mel to 13, and then Kawhi Leonard to 18 uh, in straight games, and he is really I think he people are saying oh he's above average defender I think he's better than that he's not Kawhi Leonard he's not. He's not Draymond Green, but he's 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 in the upper tiers of defenders. Even though he's much shorter and smaller, he's so strong. Um, so I, I mean, we were, if we were talking, and uh, he would be a perfect fit on like the Clippers. But the problem is they have nothing to give for him and no room to sign him. Um, but he's perfect for a contender. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, I think he fits well within any team that either plays high-level defense or wants to with that position. I mean, I think um, from a, a defensive standpoint, I think that small forward is probably the most difficult position to guard because you've got some guys that are built like tanks mm-hmm. between um, LeBron and Carmelo. I mean, you talk to anybody. I think you more frequently see Carmelo listed as toughest player to guard as opposed to LeBron. And I, I think part of it is just because of how much he tries to uh, initiate from the post, and because mm-hmm. he he plays so solidly, um, LeBron still you know initiates what he's doing from the perimeter a lot of the time, and so he can drive past you. But there are things you can put in place to kind of stop him. I think LeBron's probably tougher to guard because of his passing ability. But I think if it's just if you know that it's a one-on-one play, um, which Carmelo operates from isolation plays a lot more often than almost anybody, that Carmelo is constantly listed as either the hardest or second hardest guy to guard in the league um, in those GM surveys and, and in player surveys. So um, so P.J. Tucker's always done pretty well against Carmelo uh, and I think uh, it, it's just a situation where point guards in this league, don't. most of them don't guard particularly well. It's so hard to contain those guys 
And in a lot of cases, it's not really a one-person effort to guard point guards because they're having so many screens set for them. There's kind of a two-man job to do that anyway. And so even if a point guard has a really big night, you can't always just point directly at the opposing point guard and say, man, he was horrible on defense. Like, it's, it's a two-person job. And most point guards aren't really great lockdown defenders in the first place. Small forwards and guys that are swingmen and threes, fours, those guys have a, a bigger task a lot of times because they're expected to hold their assignments because they have to take they have to take guys down in the post and defend against them. Mm-hmm. They've got to be good enough to guard the perimeter. They've got to be good enough to be able to switch on to whoever's kind of having a good night from a scoring standpoint if it's a two or a four um, that they need help on. And so Tucker Tucker's just a very good player in that regard. I mean, I, I think a lot of teams would be fortunate to have him. Um, and, you know, and, and Phoenix is no different. Definitely. Now it's time to talk about uh, unicorns because it's time for Chris Epps Porzingis talk. Um, tell me kind of about him. Obviously, he scores 34 points. He has a crazy automatic trigger from outside. He just locked it down. He just shot them effortlessly as at 7-3. It's amazing his mobility. He has his defensive prowess already as such a young player. His ability to really move on dribble and offense is pretty amazing. But tell me about him as a person coming over from Latvia. What do you think of him? Uh, as a person, I mean, I think he's he's very well uh, spoken for someone who just moved over to America. Not that you need to know uh, live in a country to know a language, but um, you know, I think that has helped him. Uh, you know, he's very very gracious with reporters. Uh, he actually went out of his way to thank me and, and a couple other reporters last year for being. Uh, I don't even know what word he used, but I, I think he said something to the effect that the, um, the Knicks PR staff essentially warned him uh, of how the media can get in New York and so to watch out for that. And then basically said, you guys have been so nice to me. You know, I, I was kind of worried about it, but now I see there wasn't anything to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, part of that is that he hasn't really had a, a prolonged stretch of bad play. Um, and also that he's not viewed as their number one option. So I think when those things change, he'll be more, you know, subject to more scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, he could potentially go down as the, the best Nick of all time if he if he's able to stay healthy. Now, it's a big if. He's only 20 years old himself. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I think he's got a long ways to go um, to figure out exactly what his potential and what his ceiling is. But... I, I think as a player, what stands out is just that there there aren't people that you can point to that had the same skill set that he does. Yes, you know, he has the, sometimes has the shooting ability of Dirk. He's kind of perfected the Dirk fadeaway at times. Um, he can hit step backs. He can cross you over. He can, uh, you know, if you try to close out him too aggressively, he'll drive past you and he'll dunk on someone. He can get out and run the floor on the break. Uh, he can pull up and transition and hit a three, you know, when the defense is still getting settled. So, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff about him that uh, really stands out as a player. As a person, you know, he's, he's fun to deal with. His teammates really like him. Uh, Carmelo made it a point to try to take the guy under his wing because he he sees so much potential in him and also that he, he knows what the scrutiny can be like in, in New York and kind of wants to prepare him for that and put him in a place where he's not flustered uh, when he gets later in his career, when Carmelo is gone and when uh, Chris Depps has to take, you know, those shots on the chin, essentially. So I, I, I admire the way he's gone about it so far. It seems like he doesn't get too big ahead with, with kind of the success that he's had so far. It seems like he's a very, very hard worker. He's come back with all sorts of different things that he's improved on since last year. He's gotten a little bit stronger. He's, he's notably finishing better at the win, uh, at the rim this season, uh, you know, somewhere closer to 70 or 71, 72%, whereas last year is under 60% at the rim finishing. So he, I mean, his, the thing that he kept saying when he got drafted was that he was in awe of the fact that in the States you can, you know, if you're a member of the team, you can just go to the practice facility or the arena and just go shoot whenever you want, assuming that there's no event happening um, or, you know, no other team practicing on the practice court and that there was no such thing in Latvia. And so he kept saying that I'm going to improve so much just based on the fact that I'm going to have all this time to practice. And so, <laughs> um, I mean, the fact that he has a, a thought process like that is just really 
um, endearing, I think, to the fan base. They see him as a hard worker. They see him as someone who, who cares. I think the Phoenix thing, even though, you know, I think it was hyped up a little bit too much, um, you know, the, the fact that Chris shoved him and then Chris Depp stood up and then shoved him back. I mean, but I, I just think people want to see someone that's willing to kind of lay it all out for the fans. And uh, they, they like the tough-mindedness of the Oakley teams and the Anthony Masons and the John Starks. And Chris Depps has not fit that. I mean, he's more of a finesse player. He's learning how to play kind of in the trenches a little bit more and do a little bit more and muscling guys inside. But, um, you know, I don't think that will ever be his game. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't ever think that'll be, like, just the strongest part of his game. It's just the, the level of versatility that he has that really stands apart. Yeah, it's amazing because he's distanced himself from the the European stereotypes of being soft, being um, hard to maybe not hard to deal with, but soft and not really ready to mix it up and really toughness. Which, he, but that's something that's good to see from him in this sense because it's until you don't until you see it, you think it's not there. So the toughness. So is it good to see that? Um, it's funny because people are always overreacting to this this little scuffle and uh, really. Uh, he he, uh, Bledsoe was trying to run into. He was trying to get in front of Porzingis. He was trying to maybe take a charge, and then he he got shoved into Chris, and then so it was kind of a misunderstanding. But that's interesting. Right. Um, I had a comp for him um, down the line. Uh, looking at the numbers, Porzingis will surpass him. But it's interesting. A uh, comp is a. Uh, Andre Kirilenko. Um, so what do you think of that? I mean, obviously Porzingis is going to be better, but what are the what do you think of that comp? Well, I, mean, I, I think the only thing with something like that, Kirilenko, there are some elements of that that become a good comparison. I think Kirilenko did some things better than Porzingis. You know, so far, I think he's probably a better passer. He's a more versatile defender that could guard smaller players than what Porzingis is able to do. Porzingis has really struggled at times guarding guys like Draymond Green. And granted, that offense is also very hard to defend. So Draymond is not just a one-on-one matchup when you consider what he's going to be doing and who he's going to be dishing to and why it's difficult to guard him. But Porzingis has struggled sometimes when he's put on threes that can kind of play up to the four position. Um, but Kirilenko was probably a better passer. Um, and I also think that um, the, the biggest difference, clearly, is you know Kirilenko was more of a, a three that could obviously play some four. Porzingis is more of a four that, you know, eventually will probably be a full-time five. And um, the height is the big, big difference. I mean, you think about it in everyday life, a two- or three-inch difference in terms of how tall someone is might not be that big. But when you consider that um, being three or four inches taller than someone in, um, you know, in a basketball setting, uh, I mean, that makes the difference between what position you play. uh, And, you know, I'm saying two or three inches. Kirilenko was listed at 6'9", and Porzingis is listed at 7'3", and so we're talking about a half foot. So that's, you know, there are some relevant things to compare there, but I mean, I think they're just so different in terms of height that, I mean, if you'd made Kirilenko a 7'3 player, uh, (laughs) we would have probably been talking about him being, you know, him having the sort of career that Porzingis is on track to have. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, Kirilenko would have been scary, and uh, I think that's kind of the word that a lot of people would use. For Porzingis at this young of an age, and I, I will say this: I don't necessarily know that Porzingis will will go down to be the best player of his class in his class. Uh, Towns still could easily do that. I mean, it's early enough to where one of the guards, you know, maybe Russell could improve to that level too and become the best point guard in the league at some point. But I think the, the real difference this year, I think, is that Porzingis has just shown so much improvement, both statistically and in terms of the elements that he's added compared to Towns. Where Towns, Towns has stepped out and shot more threes this year, and he's been pretty solid from, from that part of the floor, but I think that Porzingis, you know, he's up to scoring by five or six points a game, and um, you know, like I predicted um, from kind of analysis that I'd run, in terms of three-point shooting, he's been better from there, um, getting to the line a little bit more, and you know, just, you know, it's more of a threat off the bounce, and it's making guys pay for either leaving him open from deep or from playing up too far on him and being able to kind of drive and put the ball on the floor and finish and traffic, which is what he wasn't particularly good at last year. And so, um, you know, like I said, I think that there are some things that are totally fair to compare, just the length. And when you look at someone and how quickly their length stands out, I think that's probably the best comparable mm-hmm. scenario with Kirilenko. But uh, but aside from that, I mean, the height is probably just a little too different to, to put them in the same category. Like you said, one will be better than the other one all said and done. Definitely. 
Um, so I finished up here with a, I, I did a little rankings of the 2015 class, and I have it as Carl Towns, uh, Chris Apps, Porzingis, Devin Booker, Miles Turner, D'Angelo Russell, Jalil Okafor, and Trey Lyles. And what do you think of that? I, we had talked about it before. I just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make yet of certain guys. Um, I think Okafor, I think eventually, and I think we might have already reached this point, eventually we're going to get to a point where people are going to question when we look at the retrospectives, how how is Okafor ever considered to be a better prospect than Towns? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think towards the end of their freshman years, you know, respectively, Kentucky and Duke, um, I think people realized that it wasn't really an accurate sort of um, comp to make, or not even comp, but just sort of debate to have, um, because the league prioritizes defense now. You know, I think earlier in, you know, in, in basketball history, you could have probably looked at it and said, well, there's a better place for Okafor, because think about it. Before teams could really stretch the floor and shoot threes the way they do now, um, people wouldn't have valued Towns' skill set as much and the ability to shoot quite as much. I don't think, you know, teams probably, you would have had old school coaches that would have told them to stay near the rim and not worry about shooting shots like that. And then on the flip side of that, someone like Okafor, one of his biggest struggles is um, his motor, but also like his willingness to come out and um, defend perimeter shooters and to, to kind of come off on pick and rolls and step up to guard guards as they're coming off of screens. And first of all, the, the league wasn't nearly as pick and roll focused as, as it is now. You know, it wasn't as big a staple as it is now. Um, but the, the floor wasn't as spaced as much either. You know, you think of a team like the Knicks where you had guys like uh, Oakley was a decent mid range shooter, but you had him and you had, um, you go down the line of the guys they had, uh, you know, Xavier McDaniels and all sorts of players that were kind of more, you know, a, a lot of guys, frankly, that weren't really good outside shooters. You had Anthony Mason and a lot of bulky guys that were just kind of physical, but more bruisers than they were shooters and, you know, more bruisers than they were finesse. And so because of that, the floor wasn't spaced nearly as much. And so defenders that struggle moving their feet wouldn't have had as hard a time playing um, in that era either to defend in that era. It wouldn't have been as difficult for someone like Okafor. So you look at him, but now I think, you know, the direction stuff is moving in and also the franchise that he's playing for. If he doesn't see a change of scenery soon, I kind of think he runs the risk of people forgetting about, you know, the, the hopes that people came in with him for um, or came in uh, having for him. And so I, I think he could end up being kind of at the back end of, you know, the elite guys that we talk about. And I think that he could end up falling from that kind of that lofty sort of language. But um, you know, I'd probably put Russell in front of Booker. I think it's tough to tell, but I think Russell's being trusted with more when he's able to play and when he's healthy than Booker is. And I think he's, given that and given the fact that he's playing a, a, a more difficult position than what Booker is, for the most part, I'd probably give him the slight edge there. Um, so I, you know, and I also think the team has been kind of put more in his hands since Bledsoe is still there with, with Booker. So we'll see. There may be an opportunity to see how much Booker progresses. Um, you know, I think that. Russell's taken a little bit more of a step forward at times this year than, than Booker has. So I'd probably have him in front. Um, but I, I would probably leave Towns in front of Porzingis for now. Um, but I, I have no idea how it's all going to shake out. You've just got so many talented guys. Miles Turner is a fantastic player. I mean, I think you could actually make the argument that he might currently be the third best player in mm -hmm. that class um, mm -hmm. and doesn't really get talked about that way, but he, he easily could be. Um so, I mean, there's just so much talent in, in that class, and I think very easily at the end of the day we could end up looking up and saying that this is one of the two or three most talented draft classes we've ever seen. For sure, for sure. Um, well, that's all for today. Let's uh, have you plug your stuff and your Twitter handle, and we'll get out of here. So you can you can find me on Twitter at Herring, H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty new to 538, but I've got – a link to my uh, my bio and everything at that website uh, and my Twitter Twitter bio, and so you can find that there. I wrote my last piece about the Bulls, um, about how they constantly seem to beat the best teams and then immediately after doing that lose to the worst teams. And even the day I wrote that, they had just come off a pretty big win against the Spurs a couple days before, and then followed that up by barely beating Miami, who's really struggled this year. 
and then followed that up by losing to Minnesota, who at the time had the worst record in the NBA. So, you know, that, that kind of speaks to what I was talking about. But try to go um, in depth a little bit and write about some reason as to why the team has been like that the last couple of years and why they still might be like that. But, um, but I write once or twice a week, so there's always new stuff on the website for me on there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I am at, on Twitter at Eric underscore Sar. And uh, if you can check out solarinsights.net, we got tons of podcasts up. We do one or two every week, so check it out. And have a great day, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Have a good day.